Before my wife and I moved to New England, this goes back 30 plus years ago, we were exposed to the history of this great area by visiting Longfellow's Wayside Inn. How many of you have ever been there? There is uh, a room where Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great American poet, would stay. It was about that inn that he penned his most famous volume of poems, Tales of a Wayside Inn. Many people don't know that Longfellow also penned one of the most famous carols. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's one of the more honest because it really speaks about the human struggle between the promise of peace and the reality of life. And for Longfellow, it was personal. He wrote that carol during the Civil War. And just before Christmas that year, he had heard that his son was badly wounded. The outcome of his son's injury was not certain. So he came into that holiday season in the midst of a country that was still torn apart by war, brother fighting against brother, the evil of slavery at the heart of the conflict, his own son possibly a victim of that very war. And add to that the fact that three months prior, his wife had perished in a very tragic accident. So he comes into Christmas Day and he hears the bells that in those days were rung throughout the region and across the country and around the world. And as he heard these bells and remembered the scripture of peace on earth, goodwill to men, the honesty of his struggle, his faith, and yet his heartbreak are put forward. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet. The words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I I like to think Longfellow would fit right into the journey because we welcome people who are honest. And the fact is, when we face hardship, we struggle. That's a reality of life. That doesn't mean necessarily an absence of faith, but it is an opportunity to explore the strength of it, to decide if we're going to move towards God or away from God. Many of us are not as honest or certainly as poetic as Longfellow, but different seasons of our lives, we all face that. And if you haven't yet, you're just probably one of the younger people in this room today, that's all. It'll catch up to you as well. That's why Christmas, for many people, is difficult, even as it's a time of great joy and tradition and hope for all of us. There's mixed feelings. As you know, in our own family, this is gonna be a time of both joy and sorrow, because this year, I've lost my father, And very recently, our beloved son-in-law, David, lost his uh, closest brother, Ben. We can resonate with the struggle of belief, the promise of peace, and the reality of conflict and heartache in the world around us. And so as we come to this passage, this promise of peace, if we compare the reality of the world 2,000 years since the coming of Christ with our ideas of what it meant that he would be the Prince of Peace. 
If we are honest about that, it at least gives pause because what seems to have been promised is not really fulfilled. Peace on earth? Really? We're going to be in Isaiah 9 to begin with. This is where we were last week when we used that great imagery of hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let's pick up at verse 6 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. For he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Great certainty Isaiah has as he looks to the child who would be born that John reminds us in John 1, as we talked about last week, he draws from that very imagery when he said that word who was with God, who was God, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he refers to him as the only begotten of the Father, the only Son, full of grace and truth, the light that shined in darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, where we see this theme of peace brought up to the time of Christ by Luke. We're going to begin at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And now this is the scene we're going to focus on today. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Luke makes the connection of the one who would come, who would be the Prince of Peace, and the declaration of the angels that because this Christ has come, it will result in peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, but on earth peace on those on whom his favor rests. And here's the question I want to ask. If our experience, the reality of the world, the wars that continue today, we still face hardship, we still face struggle. If that's the reality, 
and there was a promise of peace on earth, then the question we really need to ask is, what was the peace that Jesus was bringing? Hate is strong. It mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We could all point out things that mock this notion of peace on earth, and we could just reject it outright as just some sentimental notion of the season. Something that a beauty contestant answers when she's asked, what's the one thing you want in life? I just want world peace. (laughs) Or we, we find ourselves saying, well, Jesus really just represents, he's a symbol of peace that we all long for. Is that all that Jesus is? Or was the peace that God was bringing through Jesus something altogether different? We love the emotion and the sentiment of the season. I record Hallmark, and my wife thinks I'm doing it for her, but I watch all those movies. We love the emotion and the sentiment of the season. And we love the idea of peace on earth, but what I want to do is present to you, as best as I understand it, the truth of this passage, not the sentiment. And my hope is the truth of it will be a greater inspiration to you than the mere sentiment of the season. I believe Jesus did come to bring a very precious and special peace, as he says, that is not like the world gives. So what is it that he came to give? Well, let me start by talking about four things that it is not. We're going to accept the fact that Jesus brought peace to earth. Our own experience should tell us that these are not it. It's not political peace. It's not peace between nations. At least now it isn't. There's this interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke itself. He quotes Jesus in Luke chapter 21. He says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen. Jesus is talking about the end of days. So here at the beginning, the angels promise he's bringing peace on earth, and then Jesus himself, when he describes right up until the time that he finally comes, he says there's going to be wars. It's not to say that we shouldn't seek peace between nations. Of course we should. But that's not the peace that Jesus came to bring. The second, nowadays, we might talk about environmental peace, peace with nature. We've been destroying it, and it would be very Christian even to remember that we have been put in charge of nature, and our job is to live at peace, to manage it. It's not to say we shouldn't seek that peace, but that's not this peace. Third one is personal peace, inner peace. And this is the one probably most of us are looking for that that sense of inner stability that allows us to face anything. Nobody's gonna do anything ever that will flap us. We have this perfect peace. And I don't know a single person that actually has that. I know people that are better at it than I am. The reality is we struggle internally. Even Paul talks about that great conflict in him. The very things I know I should do, I don't do. And things I know I shouldn't do, I do. He's talking about attitude of the heart as much as action. He's this great internal conflict. That's not to say we shouldn't seek peace and there isn't a contentment that Christ promises us. But it's not this peace. And the fourth one is relational peace. Peace with our brothers and sisters. Peace with humanity. And that's that goodwill toward men that we all should get along. And at least at Christmas time, we try a little harder, right? We try a little harder, and then Christmas is over, and everybody goes to return the gifts they don't like, and goodwill towards men gets left at home. (laughs) 
I want to share with you another verse in Luke chapter 12. Again, the words of Jesus. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? What? Luke starts by saying the angels say because Christ has come, there will be peace on earth. And then Jesus says, do you, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Father against son, mother against daughter. It wasn't his intent to divide homes and families, but his point is, if you're going to accept and buy into the life that Jesus gives and offers us, it's going to cause tension. It's going to be a dividing line even in families. Even the gospel, Jesus said, does not result in your ability to get along with everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to get along with everybody. That's not the peace of Luke chapter 2. The Bible actually says we should seek all of those qualities in our life. We should pray for our governments. We should seek the peace of nations. We should seek to honor God by managing the resources of this planet. We should seek inner peace. We should let the peace of Christ dwell in our hearts, as Scripture says. And we should be peacemakers. We should seek peace and pursue it. The Bible tells us to pursue all these things. But here's the problem with thinking they are the peace that Jesus came to give. They're not permanent. They're partial and they're relative. Isaiah 9 said about this peace that Christ would bring, of this peace there would be no end. There would be no end. Let me say something else here. We're not talking about a peace that's waiting for us in the sweet by and by. The angel said, peace on earth. Peace on earth. Whatever this peace is, it can be found now. And it's meant to be found now. So let's look at what this peace really is. The first clue is found in the very words of Scripture related to peace. In Isaiah 9, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The primary word there at the core of those is the Hebrew word shalom. God's peace doesn't mean an absence of hostility. Global peace, it means wholeness, completeness. Our living a life emotionally, spiritually, socially, physically that God intended for us. Shalom is bigger than an individual experience. It's a societal experience. In fact, it's not just something for the people of God. Shalom is our mission to the world. We're taught to seek the peace of the city. Part of our mission here with the heart that we have to see Worcester transformed is to bring the shalom peace of God to the city. Now, in Luke chapter 2, of course, Luke writes in Greek, the common language of the day. And the word there in Greek is irene, and it also means wholeness, or all the essential parts being brought together. So whatever the peace is that Jesus brings, it's that. It's that shalom peace. That's clue number one. The second clue is in the earlier chapter. Double back with me to Luke chapter one. John the Baptist has been born. He's the forerunner. Zechariah didn't believe it at first, so God made him mute until the boy was born. And then the first thing he does is pronounce this beautiful song of praise to God about his son. We're going to pick it up at verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people, this is important, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah prophesies that the forerunner would prepare the way for the one who would come to bring salvation, which is about the forgiveness of our sins, and that is the path to peace. The third clue is in the angel song. Go to our primary verse, verse 14 of chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, If you haven't read the Christmas story through a more current translation than the King James Version, you're probably saying, that's not it. (laughs) That's not what they say. That's not what appears in all the cards. It's peace on earth, what? Goodwill toward men. The old King James conjures up this idea of global goodwill. That's where we get this notion of, can't we just all get along? It's Christmas. You know, goodwill toward men. But the King James translators use the wrong tense for the word. They use the accusative tense, but in fact, the original texts are the genitive tense. There is peace available for those who are in favor with God. Peace toward those on whom his favor rests. Something has been restored that was missing. The Greek would hear it and say, at one time, we had ill will with God. And now, we have good will with God because of what Christ brought to us. So when we put all that together, what we come to understand, and of course, once I say it, you're going to go, oh, of course that's it. Of course that's it. Because from here going forward, all of the Bible is about this peace. We just need to come back and make that connection to Christmas. The peace that Jesus brings is peace between people and God. People and God. Wesley's carol says it well. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. So if you really want to understand Christmas, understand the peace that God would bring that is available now on earth, that is permanent because Christ reigns and therefore of this peace there will be no end. It is this peace. You can stop your war with God. You can move from ill will to goodwill because of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it beautifully in Romans 5.1. I want you to say it with me. Therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the peace. God and sinners have been reconciled. The very night he was betrayed, Christ's final words to his followers, peace I will leave with you. But it's not like anything the world gives because it's my peace I give to you. Think about that. The peace that Jesus is giving us, it's his peace. What was Christ's relationship with the Father like? Perfect oneness. 
He speaks about it to his disciples. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He prays for the disciples that they would be one as you and I are one. What was the peace that Christ experienced with God? Eternal oneness, never broken, except one moment on the cross when he became sin for us. The Father turns his face from him to conjure for us the reality of our relationship with God because of our sin. Isaiah 59.2 says it well. Your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to turn my face from you and I don't hear you. Imagine when Christ on the cross, bearing your sin in mind, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one moment, the one moment that Christ's perfect peace with his Father was broken, was when he became you to the Father. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When our sins are forgiven through the cross of Christ and we become right with God, we are given the very peace that Christ has experienced since eternity past with his Father. It's our peace. That's why Paul can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. And in Colossians he puts it this way. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's death. We were God's enemies, Paul says, because of our sins. We were at war with him. And we weren't the ones that could make peace. So God made peace through his son. There isn't another religion in the world that can even consider the possibility of that. Every other religion in the world is about becoming worthy to receive God's goodwill and favor by living good enough. In any other religion, there's no peace. There's no peace, and death brings nothing but a question mark until we find out the outcome. The average person in America who thinks they're talking about Christian faith, when you ask them about how do you get to heaven, say just that. Well, I do the best job I can, and I suppose when I get to heaven, my good stuff will be put on one side of the scale and my bad stuff on the other, and then I'll know if I was good enough. That's not Christianity. That's not the good news. Christ came to bring a peace that is possible on earth now for us today. We can be confident that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not because we've earned it, it's because Christ earned it. It's because Christ took your sin so that you could be forgiven. He took your punishment so that rather than being under God's disfavor, we could be in his good grace and favor. That's what we call the gospel. You know one thing the Bible calls the gospel over and over again? The gospel of peace. The gospel of shalom. It's the path to peace that Zechariah spoke about, that John would point to, that Christ would bring. For any of us who still think we can earn favor with God or are trying to figure out what it means to know God, The most important thing for you about experiencing God's peace, the secret to receiving this peace, is admitting that we're at war with God. 
We don't seek and receive peace if we don't admit that there's a conflict that requires that peace. Paul writes in Romans 8, it's our natural inclination to fight against God. We do not submit to his law, nor can we do so. That's the reality of our lives. We are either submitting to God, living under his peace, or we're in rebellion to him. Now, I think the average person would never think they're in outward rebellion against God. Most of us would say, I'm not, I'm not angry at God. Sometimes I think God's mad at me, the way Christians talk about him, but I'm not angry with God. I got no problem with God. Or maybe you say, I'm neutral about God. I'm indifferent. I'm not at war against God. Am I? Well, here's the thing. If you can stay that I'm either indifferent about God or I have no problem with God, but yet you are not walking with God, you are not in relationship with God, then the only reason you can say that is because you're believing in a God of your own making. A God that you have defined in a certain way that isn't intimidating, that you don't have to become accountable to. It's the Burger King God. Have it your way. (laughs) Have it your way. The reason why God isn't someone that you understand you're at war with is because you have not encountered the real God. Do you ever notice how when you're in love with somebody, there's certain qualities about them that you just love? And then when there's stress between you and you get alienated from them, those very qualities become things you hate most about them? Did you ever notice that? Like the woman that says, oh, I love my husband. He's so calm in a crisis. He's the go-to guy in a crisis. When everybody's losing their head, he's not. When tension happens, what do they say about him? He's cold and uncaring. (laughs) Or the guy that says, yeah, my wife... Oh, she's always so focused on my needs. She gives such attention to the details of my life. I just love the way my wife takes care of me. And I know I'm making broad, stereotypical strokes. Sorry about that. Deal with it. (laughs) When you're alienated from them, when there's tension, what happens to that very same quality? She's nosy. She's in my business constantly. She's nitpicking about everything in my life. Same thing's true of God. When we are at peace with God and we have a loving relationship with him, the very qualities that are cause for worship of him when we're alienated from God are the things that we hate about him. His mercy. Oh, that's too easy. His holiness. Oh, that's too hard. His sovereignty. That's too unaccountable. It's that God who is We don't make God, God is God. In fact, that's the name he chose to describe himself to Moses. I am who I am. God is God. And that God calls us to live lives worthy of him and when sin separates us from him, we have chosen to rebel against him and we are at war with him. We don't like that term. It's not a friendly term. I wish I could say it in a kinder and gentler way. But scripture says, you're either at peace with God or you're at war with him. Because you're either calling the shots of your life or he is. 
And if you're calling the shots of your life, then you're saying, I'm in charge. You've declared outward rebellion against God because you are the sovereign of your life. And that ultimately is what the Bible refers to as sin. Anything else just is the fruit of that attitude. Our natural inclination is to fight against God. We do not submit to his law. And so what God calls us to is to admit that and recognize that he has made peace possible. He wants peace with us. He has established a path to peace, as Zachariah said. He has done it by sending his one and only son who he loved to take the punishment that you and I have earned by virtue of our rebellion. That might be the perfect Christmas message for some of you here today, even though it's not the one you expected. It might be exactly the one you need. And now for Christians, here's the thought I've got as we wrap up here. As Christians, our mission on earth is to extend God's shalom. And there are three ideas that the Bible refers to. We are peacemakers, we are peace bringers, and we are peacekeepers. Those are the things that we do as we live out this shalom to the world. You know those four things we started today by saying this isn't what the peace of Christ is? The peace of Christ is peace with God? Those four things embody what shalom actually is, but it's only possible for us to achieve the peace internationally between nations, with nature, with ourselves, and with other people when we have received the eternal peace of Christ in our lives. It's at the core of living in shalom. And so all those things come back onto the table and now become our mission. What is the way we help all of these types of peace that we long for as a people? How do we do that? We bring the gospel of peace. Because it's only when people stop being at war with God and come to peace with him that any other peace is possible and lasting and permanent. And there is a time when Christ will return as you and I have been messengers of peace, seeking peace, extending the reign of Christ through the bringing of the gospel. And there is a time that Christ will finally come and all that we have longed for, all that is now temporary and partial and relative will become eternal and complete and absolute and of his kingdom and peace there will be no end father thank you that you sought the one peace with us that you know we needed most of all you were relentless in your love for us and in your pursuit of us and in christ you made it possible for us to have peace with god and to be reconciled. Father, I pray for those here who have yet to acquire that peace, to to end that war with you once and for all, and I pray in this place before they leave, they would surrender by grace to you. They would receive forgiveness through Christ and leave here at peace with God. And I pray as Christians, Father, we would be ever mindful of the role we play because we are the body of Christ, we're the voice of Christ, we are the bringers of peace, we are the makers of peace. And we are the keepers of it in the world around us. So Father, encourage us with that and help us to leave here truly seeking the shalom of this city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.